listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, Kelowna. For more information about our church, please visit harvestkelowna.ca. So it's good to uh, be with you this morning. Uh, our, uh, for those of you who are guests here, our regular pastor, Melden Lutzer, is away uh, this, uh, today. He's, uh, he's actually working, though. He's preaching in uh, Harvest Cal- Calgary this week. And uh, here you go, Shion. Anyway, so I get the privilege of bringing the word to you this morning. Uh, this morning, we're going to be looking, continuing with our series, uh, Miracles and Meals with Jesus. I'm, I'm looking after the, the meals part. Uh, Meldon's looking after the miracles part. And this morning, we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through 50. So we'll begin by just reading through those, those verses. Uh, but before we get started, I'll just open up in prayer. Uh, Father in heaven, we want to thank you for your word. Um, God, we come here each each week uh, believing that you will feed us again for another week. God, we, we need fresh manna from you again today to live out our lives. We have struggles. Uh, people have come with problems, with burdens, uh, confused and, and Father, we're, we're, we're broken. We need, we need you. We need you this morning. We need you again today. We need you because there are, there are battles that we face. There are, there are wars that, that we are engaged in. Uh, we are fighting against an enemy uh, who wants to take us out. So God, we pray that your word would refresh us, restore us, that it would renew our faith and hope and confidence that you, are, that you are working in us, that you are our Father, that we belong to you, that we have a home, and that, Father, we can, we can, we can endure. We, we, can, we can face tomorrow because we know, Father, that you have tomorrow. You have our future in your hands. God, I want to pray for Meldon. Just uh, give him great freedom Fill him with your spirit to proclaim your word to your people. And we ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. So Luke chapter 7, uh, we're going to read this passage, verses 36 through 50. It's a fairly long, lengthy passage, but we'll work our way through it. This is one, honestly, this is one of my most favorite texts in in the scriptures. I love this the pictures, I, I love how the gospel comes out, um, I love the transformation uh, that we see here. So, yeah, it's a joy to preach from this text. Um, Luke chapter 7, verse 36, one of the Pharisees asked him, that's Jesus, to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table, and behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, When she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster jar or flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering him said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50 When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wiped Wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, 
But from the time that I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. We, we live in an increasingly disconnected and fragmented society. We stare at our devices while we eat dinner. We drive our kids to all kinds of sporting or musical or entertainment, anything to keep them busy kinds of activities. We no longer work from our homes like we used to, you know, when we were farmers and blacksmiths. And for many of us, our jobs take us hundreds and even thousands of miles from home. And uh, remarkably, the the statistics on this are are pretty sparse. Um, But what, what we do know is that there are a couple of trends. First, as children age they spend less and less time around the supper table. And second, there are many pressures that threaten, that are pulling at our meals that we spend together. And families and and our children are, are paying for it. And then even when we eat together, the research shows us that there are many forces that are at work competing for our time and our attention. A recent poll revealed that 70% of Canadians watch television while they eat. 50% browse the internet, 40% listen to radio or music, 32% read the newspapers, 26% consult post, consult or post on social media, 24% send text messages, 21% work or study, 14% talk on the phone. This is what's happening when we do have meals together. And it's not just our families. Uh, We've dragged our family problems into society so that the very idea of community, community itself is under attack. And I don't know if you know this, but there's entire movements that are focused on meal sharing. It's a word, meal sharing. I mean, we didn't even know what that word was, you know, five or ten years ago. But there's there's a whole segment of the internet that's devoted to this. The whole goal is to try and connect people to one another by hosting meals. And there's generally a monetary reward in in the process. But there's something about community that the world, the human race seems to, it deems important. It believes that it's important. Why is it? Why is it that we think that eating a meal together is so important? How should we as Christians think about meals and communities or community? Should we adopt the world's approach? The passage that we're looking at this morning takes place at a meal that that a Pharisee has invited Jesus to share with him. And in the the previous verses, um, in in verses uh, 30... um, Sorry, 28, I won't read them, but in verses 28 through 30, uh, 35, uh, Jesus has been telling the crowds about John the Baptist. That's the context. In order to reveal to them something about who he is. So he's talking about John the Baptist, but as he's talking about John the Baptist, his goal is actually to tell them something about who he is and what he's come to do. And in Luke 28 to 35, we discover that the Pharisees are actually self-righteous. They've rejected John's message of repentance. And they, they've said about John that he has a demon. But they've also rejected Jesus' message and said of Jesus that he's a glutton and a drunkard. The, the tension lies thick at this meal. Even before we begin the story. And not only is this a strange meal between 
two potential adversaries, Jesus and this Pharisee, but there's a third uninvited, uninvited guest who makes the scene extremely awkward. So just a, a little bit of background. Jewish homes, and especially those of wealthy people, often had a courtyard in the middle of them that served as a meeting place, and, w- and it would be common for local people to, to gather to come alongside. They'd, they'd listen in or they'd know that some preacher or teacher was coming along and they would come and gather in this, in this courtyard. And this extended, you know, past or beyond the, the social strata. Poor people would attend these, um, you know, these gatherings as well, hoping for a meal or maybe some scraps. But a, a Pharisee's home would be no different than any wealthy person's home, except that they would draw lines at certain people entering their homes. They were so zealous to keep the law that they developed this this, uh, fence around the law in order to keep them from breaking the law. So, just for example, the Sabbath was a, a, a law in the Ten Commandments that... Um, that was, uh, it, it, was, it, was a, it was wrong or sinful to do any kind of work. So in order to keep that law, in, or more importantly, in order to not break that law, the, the, uh, the Jews, the Pharisees, developed these extra laws, these fences that protected the Sabbath. So they would, they would make up, they had rules for how far you could walk on a Sunday before it was actually considered work. Or uh, whether you could, you know, bring your donkey or t- untie your donkey and bring him, you know, bring him with you with your, your stuff. They, they had all sorts of laws in order to protect the law, all of these additional laws to protect the law so that they wouldn't break it. But they also feared their home being defiled by unclean people. The the Pharisees believed that lepers, sinners, tax collectors, and Gentiles were all all people that would, would defile them. They would actually make them unclean, and so they, they kept themselves separate from, su- from such people. So in verse 37, when this uninvited guest shows up, a woman described as a sinner in the city, this, this creates an awkward scene. She is known in the city, and she's known as a sinner. The letting down of her hair. So there's some things that are going on in this, like in these verses here. Verse 37, and behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet uh, wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet. There's a lot going on in those verses culturally that we don't immediately pick up on. The letting down of her hair to wipe Jesus' feet is considered an intimate act. Women in, um, and I think it's still largely true today, or it's pretty common today, but women in that time period would wrap their hair in in, in a cloth and and it would always be, their hair would always be covered and and it would in fact be done up. And to let their hair down in public could actually result in in discipline from the community. So this woman letting her hair down and wiping Jesus' feet is actually viewed as a very intimate act. So most commentators take this, uh, this scene or this description of this woman to, um, to mean that this woman is is a prostitute. Her profession is prostitution. Now, technically, the law had provisions for any person who was defiled by sin to become clean. If you were poor, like Jesus' parents were, and, and, 
Luke's gospel actually tells us this. If you couldn't afford to, to offer a large offering like a bull or a ram, you could offer a lamb or um, pigeons or turtle doves. You, you could offer something that was very inexpensive. But the problem for this woman, she's a sinner. She could solve the problem of her sin. She could become clean. But the problem from, for this woman wasn't her poverty. The problem was her occupation. Prostitution, leprosy, stealing, like the tax collectors were guilty of, were all occupations or circumstances that made you unclean. If the woman was able to buy costly perfume, then she could pay for a sacrifice that would cleanse her. But the problem is that in order to do that, she would have to give up the very occupation that provided her with food for her family she would have to give up the very means of her support, her self-support. Life for her was a catch-22. She was stuck. That's that's this woman's life. She's stuck being clean. She had two, two options. She could be clean and poor and have difficulty feeding herself and her family and and still be shunned by society. That just because she she offered a, a sacrifice to cleanse herself and gave up her, um, her profession, wouldn't put her right in the community. She could be all of those things and still be shunned by society. Or she could continue to prostitute herself and feed her children. It, it, this is not a simple situation. And it doesn't become simple after she, after she comes to Jesus. But let's look at the woman a little closer. What do we observe? The first thing that we see is that she is, this woman is eager to meet Jesus. The text says that when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, she went to him. There is clearly a great affection for Jesus. For we see her weeping as though the dam of her heart had burst open and, and, and that's enabled her to, to wet his feet, to, to wash his feet with her tears. And I don't know about you, but I've, I've, never, I've never seen anything close to this kind of emotion. Maybe someone here has seen it, but this is an unusual kind of emotion and amount of emotion and it suggests that there is some, I think it suggests that there's some deep, deep connection between this woman and Jesus. So the second thing we see is that, that this affection that she has for Jesus, and it's clearly affection, it is great. Not only great because of, of what's happening, that the tears that she's shedding for, for Jesus, but she is willing to risk in order to come and see Jesus. She is willing to be cast out of this Pharisee's house in order to see Jesus. And not only that, but she puts Jesus at great risk. And you you don't normally want to put somebody that you love deeply at great risk. She, She has given this a lot of thought. There is affection and deep, deep affection for um. For Jesus by this woman. The third thing that we see is that there's, there's an eagerness. She is eager. The, the woman, the, the text doesn't really give us any sense of immediacy. It doesn't give us any words like she got up immediately and, and went to see Jesus. But there's, there's a sense of urgency in this text. It says, when she learned that he was reclining at the at table at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster flask of ointment. It's like she goes immediately. She hears about it and then she goes and does it. There's, there is some kind of eagerness to see Jesus. She almost, you, you almost expect that she's dropped everything in order to make this happen. And then finally, there, there's some kind of forethought here as well. She's got this this alabaster jar. This alabaster jar doesn't seem to be some kind of afterthought. It seems like she has thought about this. Um, she has some kind of plan to honor Jesus. So let me, let me just paint a story for you a little bit here. 
Imagine that a friend has invited you to another person's house to meet a well-known and respected Bible teacher. You arrive, shake hands, introduce yourself, and then from out of nowhere, this woman appears. She's wearing stiletto shoes, fishnet stockings, a form-fitting dress with a plunging neckline revealing an ample bosom, and the, the, the one thing that really stands out for you, though, is that is the smudged, heavy, black mascara uh, as she clings, weeping on the shoulder of this preacher. And it's, it's smudged from the tears that are pouring down her cheek. And nobody in the room is unsure of, of this woman. She is clearly a woman from the streets. But the, the really awkward thing in all of it is that the preacher is doing nothing about it. He doesn't try to distance himself in any way from her. Instead, he embraces her. He speaks tenderly to her. He asks her her name. And he consoles her. What do you think you would say in a, in a circumstance like that? And honestly, for me, the scene is so over the top. I, I, I have a hard time even thinking of it as, as real. And I think it's mostly because I, I simply cannot imagine myself in a situation like that. I cannot imagine myself in reality ever getting myself into a, into a situation like that. Let me explain. I have a sense of dignity of propriety, of modesty, and, and, and there, honestly, there's probably some pride mixed in with all of that. And uh, unfortunately, there's also a healthy dose of fear of man. And all these things keep me from getting into the kinds of situations that Jesus is finding himself in. Jesus says awkward things. My wife accuses me of saying awkward things, but I don't do though. I don't I don't say awkward things like Jesus says. He asks people awkward questions and he asks them to every sort, every kind of people. Sometimes I I do these things, but I do them infrequently. And then he asks all of these things in such a way that people feel like they can let their hair down. Quite literally, in this case, they, they feel like they don't have to pretend to be somebody that they're not. They don't have to pretend to be better than they are. They don't have to pretend like they are more cleaned up than they really are. Jesus, Jesus is not threatening to sinners. That's, that's amazing. This woman does not feel an ounce of threat from Jesus. Sometimes I can do this as well. Sometimes I get, you know, little, little bits of that that come out infrequently. But, but the thing that Jesus does that I don't do and I'm not sure that I can do is to, is to welcome. And I mean welcome. Right? Not, I'm not using a, a word here. I'm using an, a posture, an attitude. Jesus welcomes sinners. He welcomes them where they're at. There's a huge part of me that wants to get sinners all cleaned up before I spend time with them. And certainly before I bring them to church. But that's not, that's not what Jesus does. This woman is doing her best to welcome Jesus. That's kind of a twist here. This woman is actually welcoming Jesus. And she's welcoming Jesus in the only way that she knows how to. But despite her intentions, her loose hair, the expensive perfume, and her prolific kissing, all of these are suggestive of her profession. She, she is a prostitute. She is doing these things to Jesus. But Jesus knows that the motives that she is doing them with are pure. And all of this very easily could have started tongues wagging. 
It could have spelled the, I don't know whether it could have spelled the end of Jesus' ministry, but it surely could have put a damper on Jesus' ministry. And what does Jesus do? He's silent. Jesus is silent. His silence is, is deafening. His silence actually speaks volumes. He knows this woman's heart. He's not afraid of what anyone else thinks. His sole concern is for this woman. Yes, there's probably practices that need to disappear, but that's for another day, not today. Today, this woman will be forgiven. Today, this woman becomes a subject of God's kingdom. Today is a day of rejoicing, and Jesus sees that. You know what I fail to get? Jesus loved this woman, and in loving her, he forgot everything else. And you know, that's the nature of hospitality. Hospitality loves without conditions or expectations. There's no quietly biting your tongue or hidden agendas. Jesus doesn't do that. Hospitality loves without conditions or expectations. So there's two things that are going on here. First, Jesus is welcoming the woman. We don't have any description of any kind of previous encounter between this woman and Jesus. Uh, We have references to Jesus interacting with prostitutes in John chapter 4 and John chapter 8 and maybe in a couple of other places in in the Gospels. Both of which, um, both of those passages describe encounters that Jesus has with prostitutes who were forgiven or shown mercy by Jesus. And maybe this woman heard those stories. But what is clear is that what, <clears throat> this woman is coming to Jesus because she not thinks, she knows, she believes without a shadow of doubt that she will receive grace and forgiveness from him. The second thing that we see is that this woman's affection, her love, her zeal, her forethought towards Jesus is how she welcomed him. Yes, she used all of the trappings of her sinful life, but she's coming to him for forgiveness. Her actions, no matter what we think of them, are the actions of a host welcoming guests. So in verse 39, Luke provides this narrative aside, right? We we get into Simon's head. We get get to think. We kind of get a front row seat on what Simon is thinking. We learn that Simon's assumptions about the kingdom of God are actually backwards And his ignorance about Jesus is on display. And what do I mean? Well, Simon believes that touching a sinner makes a person unclean. This is is the logic that's going through Simon's head. Touching a sinner makes a person unclean. And we know that prophets hear from God. Jesus is touching this sinner so Clearly, he can't be a prophet. That's the logic that's going through here. But there's something wrong with his logic. The problem is that Simon doesn't understand sin. Now, I'm not saying that he has no idea, but he's not, he doesn't understand sin the same way that Jesus understands sin. Nor does he understand Jesus. So in Matthew 15, 11, Jesus says that it's not what goes into a person that makes him unclean, but it's what comes out of a person that makes him unclean. That is what comes out of his heart. Sin is what comes from the heart. It's not the food that we eat or the music that we listen to. Sin comes from what we desire, and the desires come from our heart. And Simon was concerned with all the things all the externals that the woman does when he ought to be concerned with his own heart and specifically with the self-righteousness in his own heart. But not only does 
Simon misunderstands sin, he he misunderstands Jesus. Back in chapter 5, we saw, Meldon preached on this last week, um, we saw that Jesus cleanses people when he touches them. Back in chapter 5, he touches that leper, the passage that, that Meldon preached on. And when he touches that leper, instead of Jesus becoming unclean, the leper becomes clean. Jesus makes the leper clean. Until that moment, this had never happened before. Leprosy wasn't just a disease that needed healing. Leprosy, according to the Old Testament, is something that actually made a person unclean. There were two problems. You had the disease and you were also unclean. In effect, Jesus does two miracles when he heals the leper. First, he heals him of his sickness. And then he cleanses him. And what you may not realize or what's maybe not obvious is that in doing this, Jesus changes the entire temple and sacrificial system. He's, Jesus is a threat to the, to the Pharisees. He's a threat to their temple and their sacrificial system. His teaching is dangerous and it threatens to undermine everything that the Pharisees and the leaders of of Israel are hoping for. If people can go to Jesus, I'll, I'll explain. If people can go to Jesus for healing, cleansing, and forgiveness of sins, they no longer have to go to the temple and the priests. Jesus has just done away with an entire way of Jewish life that's been in place for 1,500 years. That's dangerous. The Pharisees and the leaders don't like that. But honestly, that's not even the big problem. The the big problem is that Jesus is inviting all the wrong people. Sinners are unclean. They're defiled. And they defile anyone they touch. Jesus, the Messiah, is that they're expecting this Messiah to come. Jesus Jesus is the Messiah. He never denies being the Messiah. He's preaching about God's coming kingdom. And the Pharisees and the religious elite, they've been preparing for hundreds of years for this. They're looking for the consolation of Israel, this coming Messiah. And they've been preparing by trying to clean up their lives, by trying to get rid of sin, by trying to prepare the nation, by trying to get the nation to repent of sin. And now Jesus is welcoming the very people that they're trying to avoid. This is is huge. This This is a major problem here that we're coming across in this passage. So going back again into Simon's head, it's... Luke's having a little bit of fun here, actually. We know that Simon has concluded that Jesus couldn't be a prophet. But we also know that Jesus knows what Simon is thinking. Now, Simon doesn't know this. Simon Simon actually believes the opposite. He, He believes that Jesus doesn't know anything. And the irony is thick. Uh... So in verse 41 to 42, Jesus tells Simon a simple parable about forgiveness. Two debtors owing differing amounts have their debts forgiven. Jesus asked Simon which debtor will love their uh, money lender more. And Simon understands the parable. But it's unclear if he really understands the application to his own life. So I don't know if you're like me, but when somebody doesn't understand something, like I think that's a problem to be solved. And I go after that. And I say, well, you, do you really understand what's going on here? This is, I'm talking about you, Simon. But that's not what Jesus does. So instead of explaining Simon's sin, Jesus explains how the woman of the city has been changed by her faith in Jesus' power to forgive sins. Jesus is a prophet. He really is a prophet. He knows about this woman's sins. But he also knows about Simon's self-righteousness. Jesus knows that he knows it. 
Like, he doesn't know it the way you and I know things. He knows, like, what I'm talking about. He knows it in the way that you and I know facts, right? We can measure things. Jesus knows that this woman has put her faith and trust in him. But he also knows that Simon doesn't believe that he has the power or the authority to forgive sins nor does Simon believe that he needs Jesus to forgive him of his sins. He has a temple and a sacrificial system for that. He has the priesthood. So what is really remarkable, what is really remarkable in all this is Jesus is doing this not for the woman. He's doing this for Simon. He, here, we, it feels like there's this tension and there is a tension a real tension here. But Jesus is at Simon's house with, you know, with somebody that, that, is, that is probably his adversary. This woman comes in and Jesus doesn't have to focus on this woman because he already knows that this woman has trusted him completely. His concern is for Simon. That, that is really... I, that's really remarkable. So, at, like after all this, let me ask you a question. Who's the best host? Right, we know who the host is supposed to be. It's Simon that's, in, that's invited Jesus to this meal. But who's actually practiced hosting or welcoming people? And this is a legitimate question because as Jesus points out, the one who invited him has really been shown up by the uninvited guest. Hosts are, a vital, are vital to, to meals. They're the face of our restaurants, right? They set the tone, the atmosphere, and most importantly, hosts welcome guests. Hosting's a big deal in the Bible. Abraham hosts angels. <clears throat> Peter tells us, tells the churches to practice hospitality to the end, because the end is coming, right? Practice hospitality because I'm coming. That's, that's Peter's argument. Hebrews tells, the book of Hebrews tells its audience that they should practice hospitality because they might be entertaining angels. But Jesus, Jesus identifies a qualitative difference. Um, it, it's not just me- measurable, it looks very different between how the woman of the city and how Simon welcomed him. In verses 44 through 46, Jesus compares three distinct actions that the woman of the city performs in contrast to the host who invited Jesus. In verse 44, we see, um, Jesus says, Do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. In verse 45, Jesus points out that you've given me no kiss. But from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. Verse 46, Jesus points out to Simon, You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Who is the real host? Perhaps a a better question is, why does the woman of the city welcome Jesus? Not, Not who, but why. Why does this woman welcome Jesus? differently than Simon. And the answer is in verse 47. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven for or because she loved much. It's her love for Jesus that sets her apart from Simon. It's because she understands how much she's been forgiven. You see, knowing how much you've been forgiven makes you a great host. Let me say that again. Knowing how much you have been forgiven makes you a great host. That's not the first thing that we think of when we think of, you know, what what makes a a great host. That's not the first thing that that would come to my mind, but that's what we see here. Knowing how much you have have been forgiven makes you good at welcoming strangers. First of all, you're acting like Jesus, but 
more, like more importantly, knowing and experiencing Jesus' love and forgiveness, it leaves you changed. This woman is, is a different woman. You don't see people the same. When you experience the love and forgiveness of a Savior who cleanses you from all of your sins that you've committed today, that you committed yesterday, that you committed last week, and this Savior will forgive all the sins that you will commit tomorrow and next week, when you come to understand that you are a sinner right now in need of grace for that angry word or that condemning thought or that lustful look for the four hours you spent worrying yesterday or the, for the four hours that you wasted playing video games or idolizing your next purchase, when you understand that God forgives you your present sins, your future sins, your past sins, you will respond like this woman. And perhaps if you've never responded like this woman, just perhaps, you don't understand Jesus' grace, His mercy, and His forgiveness. The grace, mercy, and forgiveness that changed this woman. So, at this point, you could walk out of this movie theater thinking that Jesus is awesome. And, and that will be good. He is a loving, gracious, forgiving God who change people, changes people into loving, gracious, forgiving people. And if you got that this morning, that would be awesome. It really would be. And, it, I, I mean, yeah, if you really got that, that, that would be great, and I could stop. But I want more for you this morning than that. It's not a coincidence that this story about Jesus takes place around a meal. It's not a coincidence. As I said a couple of weeks ago, this was Jesus' ministry model. He came eating and drinking, and that's how he proclaimed the message of the kingdom. That's how, by eating and drinking. That's how he came. And I want for us... To really get this. Meals are a great place. In fact, they're an ideal place to welcome sinners and talk about Jesus. They are the place where community happens. And Christians don't have a corner on this market. The world knows this. And, and, and they're making money off of it. But but we don't want to practice community like the world. We, we have a different power behind community. So let me, let me just try and walk through some practical things. Um, so in a, in a Bible study, you can keep your distance. You, you, you can ask a few questions. You can give some reflections. You can pray. But meals, meals are, meals are awkward. Meals bring us close. Bibles... Uh, tend to remain closed at meals, just to keep the crumbs out. Uh, the agenda disappears at meals. You have to talk. Usually there's no discussion format, no protective purpose or agenda to hide behind. Just you and other people eating, sharing food, sharing life, sharing stories. It's intimate. It's close. Things get spilled, knives get borrowed, laughter shared. You learn about each other. Affections can grow and you start to care. And then when the water goes down the wrong hole and the, t the table almost becomes a car wash and, you're, and your guests feel totally like they're your family at that point. Uh, meals are, meals are, are family places. Meals are places where boundaries come down where people are welcomed in. So meals um, also mark boundaries, but they can change boundaries too. Typically, we eat with people of our own social status. This has always been true. For all of history, this has been true. You invite people who are like you, people of your class, people who, who will invite you back. You don't eat with people who are 
generally poorer than you, nor do you eat with people who are richer than you, and you certainly don't eat with your enemies. But if we start breaking these taboos, what happens? Lines can be redrawn. Enemies can become allies. It's, it's hard to eat with an enemy, but I tell you, once you eat with an enemy, um, you quickly find that there, there is commonality. There's common ground. You're both human. You both share human experiences. Boundaries, borders, walls come down. Lines are redrawn. Enemies become allies. Poor people are elevated. It's humanizing. You invite somebody into your home and you're treating them like you're equal. That, that's a humanizing thing to do. You discover that rich people are, are just like you as well. Meals are also places where life can slow down for a second. Our lives are going at 180 miles an hour. It feels like maybe that's slow. And often the result is that problems get solved. I bet that eight on, I bet 80% of our, our family issues, family problems, and it's just my kids that have problems. Um, I bet 80% of our parenting happens around meals. Just ask my kids. Last week, we were eating with some friends, and uh, we had a significant conversation that will probably shape the course of our lives. All of that happened during a meal. You have stories like that as well. And it's not just that this can't happen outside of meals. It's just that it happens naturally when we have meals together. Meals are natural places for evangelism. Evangelism never feels natural, but Meals are natural places for evangelism. Evangelism is hard for everyone. Even, for, even evangelists say that. We, always, we think of people that are good at evangelism, and we think, well, they never struggle with that. But there's a, I can't remember his first name. I think his last name is Tito. There's a guy that uh, passes a church in Oxford, uh, London, who's written books on evangelism, and he said those very words. He says, evangelism's hard. I always have to stir myself up every time I talk to somebody. But it, Evangelism is hard for everybody, but meals are a good place to practice evangelism. When we invite people into our homes, we're welcoming them like Christ. That breaks down borders. There's grace. There's fellowship that happens. Warmth. We're sharing intimacy. We're sharing fellowship. We, we can talk about real issues There's overlap. You're like me. You have the same struggles as I have. You have insight and wisdom for me. Meals are are places where all all those borders, all those boundaries, all those walls can come down. I I hope and know that for many of you... um, your desire is for deeper community in the church, that we would get past formalities and really learn how to share life together, how to grow in transparency, how to learn uh, to practice grace and love. But, but there is a danger in all of it. Dietrich Bonhoeffer writes that uh, people who dream of an ideal community, who love the dream more than the reality, eventually destroy the dream itself. This person enters the community of Christians with demands and sets up his own law and judges the brethren and God accordingly. And when his ideal picture is destroyed, when it doesn't happen, he first becomes the accuser of the brethren, then an accuser of God, and finally the despairing accuser of himself. Meals involve real people with real quirks and real messes. Community is not for pansies. The only way to keep yourself from becoming disillusioned and fed up is to practice what we've heard this morning, which is to love Jesus first for all that he's done for you and then to love the people that he's saving and sanctifying and not want to change them. Just just want to love them. They'll change. God's God's in the business of changing people. Like everything else, the world makes an idol out of community. But community can't stand up to those demands. Community will always crumble under, under the weight of our worship. We don't want to make community our goal. We want community 
to serve us as a means of introducing the world to Christ and really growing and bringing about sanctification in one another's lives. Perhaps you've had enough life experience and are honest enough to admit that you like the idea of community, but you don't really like the reality of community. If you've been around long enough, you, you get that, right? You know, like having a meal around a, a table with a family sounds nice and um, idyllic, pastoral even, but, you know, like, it's just messy. Two-hour conversations, are they get tiresome after a few of them for both sides as well. My kids get tired of those kinds of conversations. Community's messy. It can be hard. There's people involved. It'd be a lot easier if there were no people. But just because it's hard doesn't mean that it isn't worth pursuing. Just like good food requires preparation, and that means sharp instruments and tough cutting questions it means getting your hands dirty it means sometimes that sometimes things get spilled and there's times when you wish what got spilled was the soup and not all the problems that your brother or sister or you have real community is messy like a meal but don't forget how deeply satisfying a hearty bowl of soup can be Real community is deeply satisfying. Let's pray. Father in heaven, um, I just want to ask that you would use uh, these weak words that are simply trying to get at or reveal uh, truths in your scriptures to change us. God, I, um, I, I want to pray that you would help us to go deeper with one another, to really practice loving one another well. God, uh, save us from ourselves. Save us from our idealism. Um, God, help us to practice the grace, the same grace and forgiveness and generosity that you have shown to us. We pray these things all in Christ's name.